Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics, right here on Blog Talk Radio. to Voice of Olympus. I am your host, Hercules Invictus, and today is our Celestial Chariots episode. Um, and I'm greatly honored to announce our first segment, which is with Bob Vossler of Starfleet International. Greetings and welcome, Bob. How are you? All right. How you doing? I'm doing phenomenally great. Great to be speaking with you, and congratulations on uh, all the new opportunities that have opened up for you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I, I'm going to be enjoying going back to what I've been doing for a good chunk of my life uh, full time again. And, uh, um, you know, it, it's it, originally I was going to start on Monday, but uh, they've already asked me to start a bit early. So uh, tomorrow is my last day uh, at the library, and I'll start off the next day uh, at my new place. <laughs> that is incredibly awesome. Now, um, I've been uh, trying to catch up on my Star Trek, so at this particular point in time, I've uh, watched uh, Discovery Seasons 1 and 2. Uh, I've read two of the Discovery graphic novels, one on Klingons and one uh, called Succession, which is about the Mirror Universe. And I'm about to start Star Trek Discovery, The Enterprise War, which explained what uh, Captain Pike was doing uh, during season one of uh, uh, Discovery. So uh, now my my wife and I are watching uh, Enterprise. We're watching the first season. And we watched the Orville while we were at it as well. So the journey begins anew. (laughs) Wow. It sounds like you've been catching up with a lot of stuff. That's, That's very cool. Now, uh, you also got both seasons recently at a convention. Um, have you watched through them again? Any uh, impressions, if you have? Uh, we have not. Actually, I'm embarrassed to admit that we have not actually finished all of season two. Um, 
my wife and I just seem to, we, we want to like pick the, the right time and, uh, you know, it, we, we seem to wait too late in the evening to, 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 to watch an episode, uh, which is kind of funny because then my wife will then watch, uh, you know, one of the, uh, reruns of Next Gen or Classic or even Deep Space uh-huh. Nine on, on the H&I uh, channel, even though we own, you know, we own them uh, and could watch them at any point. So it makes no sense, but, you know. But we will eventually get those last few episodes of uh, Star Trek uh, Discovery Season 2 down. But uh, And I kind of know what's going to happen anyway, but I, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually watching them. Um, I was doing some graphic novel reading myself of the of the next gen uh, mirror universe story. Uh, yeah. Is that what you were reading? Or oh, okay, with uh, Picard and uh, yeah, I I started reading it during my vacation. I had brought a, a, a bunch of reading material, um, and really because the weather was so fantastic, I really didn't have much chance to to read. So the next gen. Um, story was sort of like towards the very end of the vacation. In fact, I think I was reading it on the plane back, but I, I didn't get to finish that, but I, I've liked what I've read so far. Yes, I picked up some uh, next-gen uh, graphic novels as well. I haven't had a chance to read them, though. So they're on... Uh, I have uh, um, a big shelf, a small shelf, and a box full of Trek material I need to uh, uh, review. And uh, I'm doing it slowly but systematically. And uh, Discovery and also the Kelvin universe both involve time travel, which is where I'm kind of settling on. And uh, I found a series of books uh, from the Department of Temporal Investigation, Star Trek. So uh, I'm, I'll be reading those. Two of them are hard uh, copies, and the rest uh, I couldn't find hard copies, but I found Kindle copies. Uh, and then. Uh, there's the Star Trek collection Time Travel, the fan collective. So uh, since I'm setting a lot of my story uh, uh, throughout time in other dimensions, uh, I figured let me read those so I can uh, interface uh, with the Star Trek universe uh, much better. Sounds great. Little, A lot of inspiration there. Yes, definitely. Uh, before I met with the uh, USS Justice, um, in the role play in the libraries, we were doing uh, uh, basically the time wars. So this mm-hmm. is a natural succession from that because the time wars was kind of like the, the crisis on infinite Earths in the DC universe. Uh, we had accumulated so much clutter after nearly a quarter of a century of role playing to get the streamline everything again. It was just way too much there. <laughs> Now, um, one of the topics we're going to discuss tonight is uh, uh, time travel in uh, Star Trek. Um, they've handled this in a variety of different ways, so it does not seem impossible to travel through time or at other dimensions in, uh, in Star Trek. In fact, it's, uh, it's fairly common, given the number of episodes. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, time travel's been one of the most recurring themes that we've seen in all the Star Trek series, uh, and, and certainly the films, um, especially in Voyage Home and, yeah. you know, First Contact, and in Generations, uh, it was handled in a slightly different way with the with the 
energy ribbon, but that's how we were able to see Picard and Kirk meet each other, you know, within that gap. Um, So I think it's been used very effectively and, um, you know, right down to, of course, the Emmy-winning City on the Edge of Forever where, you know, uh, where they they use the, the gateway to time. You know, so we've we've seen it. Plus, of course, the the slingshot effect that was was introduced in in uh, tomorrow is yesterday, and which we uh-huh. ran recently, and um, you know, and then was deliberately reused uh, when they were doing that when they were doing the uh, episode Assignment Earth, which which of course introduced us to uh, Gary Seven, and uh, which was. You know, supposed to be a pilot for a, a spinoff show, which sadly never came about. But you know, put the Enterprise crew in the 1960s. Um, ironically, uh, just in time for a, you know, for around the time of the the first moon launch, uh, which they had pretty well close. It was 1969. So, uh, you know, and here we are, 50 years later. And hopefully, going back to space uh, more frequently again. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm hoping we, we do see within our lifetime, you know, an establishment of a, of a moon base there, um, you know, a, a real moon base alpha, uh, minus the blasting of the moon out of the Earth's orbit. That that would be a bummer. Um, <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> we've got enough uh, climate control problems uh, going on now. We, we, we wouldn't want to necessarily see more uh, if the moon, you know, left our orbit. It would create a lot of uh, tsunamis and, and, and other problems. Uh, from what my understanding is, I'm not a scientist, we need the moon for life to exist as we know it uh, to exist. Exactly. Here. So, yeah, that, that would be yeah, a major bucket for the moon. The, the tides and, 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 uh, and all, everything else, so, and gravitational forces, so yeah, we can't afford to lose the moon. Now, one of the the things I'd like to do more of right now, what I'm doing is uh, uh, through my own uh, role playing uh, um, activities, interactive storytelling activities at the library, and then uh, through enrichment companies I work with or for. Um, there's a uh, I'm, I'm basically trying to encourage uh, STEM and STEAM. Uh, and robotics and uh, space science, as much as uh, uh, these uh, circumstances allow. Um, and uh, I would like to continue in this direction with uh, the uh, Star Trek uh, Club. Can you recommend any uh, type of uh, charities or uh, uh, initiatives that uh, would uh, hasten um a world where uh, this is more of a focus than it is Norris? Uh, are you talking specifically about um, some of the STEM, uh, you know, initiatives of, of getting young people to get more involved and aware of, of science, engineering, you know, robotics and things like that? Is that what you're talking about specifically? Yes, currently what I do is uh, I am at the library. Um, I have uh, my own programs there. And the ones that are with uh, kids, 
um, focus on science fiction and also science fact. And they uh, encourage participation in the library STEM, STEAM, and uh, uh, astronomical uh, activities or space-sized activities. So um, like this summer, they had the, the science fiction outer space uh, summer reading program. So I uh, yeah. modified the yeah. playing game to take us into outer space, and I tied it into the, the Star Trek uh, stuff. And uh, uh, the kids have been uh, mostly on adventuring on Venus. And in terms of encouraging reading, I based the Venus that they're uh, experiencing very strongly on Edgar Rice Burroughs' uh, Venus. Mm-hmm which is now coming out in comic book form also, so this way I encourage them to read. Um, so that's an example. And then if they participate in uh, some of the library STEM or STEAM or robotic or astronomical activities, and right now the astronomical activities are on hiatus, so I'm having a meeting to see how we can uh, revitalize that, uh, they get either uh, items or devices or experience within the game that they can use. So, you know, they're rewarded um, for participating. I know that each October there is a national, um, it may be called Gaming Day or what, but it, it's yes. a day where um, they they have uh, uh, like a huge um, tournament of, of, you know, for the robotics and other interesting programs that are, uh, you know, uh, focused on all the, the STEM and STEAM, um, you know, uh, projects. And, and uh, I know in Ocean County, because you know, it's, a, it's a national uh, observance, so almost every county probably has something similar to what we have in Ocean County. Um, and, and we have it at uh, one of the larger high school uh, facilities. And so I'm sure that your county probably has it as well. And I bet uh, the library, you know, since the libraries usually participate and, you you know, use that as an opportunity to uh, promote their programs and, and also their uh, makerspace, you know, a lot. That's a big thing in libraries right now. Um, the makerspace uh, labs that are based in some of the libraries, uh, or you know, they have programs like that. So that's that's a big part of that particular event. So I bet your local library that you work with might know when the next one is being held, and that would open you guys up to a lot of different agencies that that you could partner with and, and you know, uh, work with as well as the library. Um, you know, and also some companies that might, you know, help sponsor some of your projects, you know, uh, uh, um, as a non, you know, you guys being a nonprofit and everything. So, you know. Those are great ideas. We've actually done those things with uh, uh, the Kresge Library. Uh, they have a makerspace now. Uh, I'm, I'm the president of the Friends, so that was one of the things that we uh, we did. You know, uh, and uh, also with the uh, Gaming Day, uh, we've participated in that for the past, uh, I guess, four years or so. Um, and so those are great ideas. And uh, um, I'm going to look into sponsorships for the gaming day 
um, game companies have uh, uh, participated by sending games uh, that we've had at the gaming day. So uh, I haven't started looking for games for this year, so maybe I'll start doing that. Wow, sounds like you guys are already ahead of the game. <laughs> no, no pun intended. <laughs> but uh, that's fantastic. That was a, that's a great program, um, and and it's probably incredibly satisfying. And, uh, you know, it gets the kids involved in, in, in interest in science and, and uh, mathematics and engineering, all the things that, you know, Star Trek inspired a lot of, people to, to, to go into. Um, so, you know, the co- connection seems never ending uh, between Star Trek and, uh, you know, and real life uh, science pursuits. Yes, I remember um, many people being interviewed over the, the decades since uh, Star Trek started, where things that we have, like the, the, the flip phones, those were inspired by the communicators and uh, uh, the disk drives and computers and, uh, the, and even the uh, replicating uh, um, the replicating type of uh, machinery we have now, which makes uh, spare parts for tanks and other vehicles and uh, is even making food uh, at this point. Um, th- those are all from Star Trek. People who are Star Trek fans yeah. want to make that future a reality. Yeah, the, the replicators, I mean, the laser printers are, you know, yes. sort of based on that, too. Um, you know, the Makerspace, prob- your Makerspace probably has one of those. Um, I know uh, the Toms River and our Jackson Library both have, have those. And they're amazing. I mean, they're still they still take a while to make certain things, but it's still the technology is is just incredible to watch that that they could put so much detail, you know, combining computer and you know uh, a manufacturing system together, and it can just make uh, some kind of plastic object. I know that there's all programs too on people making uh, specific types of prosthetics for, for yes. people. Um, you know, that's just, you know, even 10 years ago, we would never have believed that something like that would, would come about, you know, so soon in our, in our future. Um, you know, we, we would think, oh, that's kind of science fiction-ish, you know, but yet, it, you know, the future really is now. I mean, we're seeing some really awesome things happen. Yes, we, we, we definitely are, and it's that hope that uh, Star Trek has provided in its many incarnations, uh, the, the hope for a better future, the, the hope that we can overcome uh, all the obstacles we currently face and emerge from uh, uh, any and all difficult circumstances triumphant uh, that I believe is the most empowering aspect of Star Trek. Absolutely, the you know, if, if there's ever a time when we needed to to see some, you know, some hope uh, and and know that, you know, um, that the future, you know, w- that we will get there, uh, I think it's now. And, uh, you know, we're still seeing some very interesting uh, things technologically. And, and I think, you know, uh, 
uh, and a technology always is backed up by the people uh, itself, you know, our ourselves, I should say. And, you know, people use that technology to, to guide us to make a better world. So, um, you know, I think that it kind of reinforces each other. What can be done, uh, what would you consider an effective way of uh, encouraging adults to invest themselves in uh, uh, the space program? Hmm. Um, There's so many distractions in today's world uh, that, uh, again, people are considering that frivolous, but that is the key to our future, I believe. Well, you know, I I think... um, Challenger several months ago, um, and in fact, we're looking into doing it again. We, we did a, a program over at the uh, Novus Planetarium, which is at the Ocean County College, uh, and, and it may, mostly it was for fun. And we're going to actually do something there one of these days uh, that uh, that you know that we're going to co-partner with them and, and, and be able to showcase you know a, a bit of, a, of what we do in, in Star Trek, but. Um, when we go to there just for the fun of it of one of their laser shows, um, you know, it, it brings up the whole aspect of astronomy. And I think um, the stars and, and, you know, those type of shows where, uh, where they, they highlight, um, you know, a pla- the resources of a planetarium are, are open to both you know, young people and older people that, that we, you know, we really connect uh, with some of those programs. So I, I think, um, you know, encouraging people to maybe become involved in, in the astronomy programs in, in the area. Um, if, if you have a, an area planetarium or something like that, that, that it's, it's both educational, but it's also relaxing and it, it just sort of shows the, awesome nature of, you know, of, of space, you know, it's, it's sort of a, you know, it, 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 it's, it really is breathtaking to, to see some of those, you know, stars and, and constellations. And it, it, I think it brings back a lot of memories for a lot of adults of, of when we were growing up and learning some of that. So that's that's one area I would say, and it might inspire people to to um, you know to look ahead to to some of the things that are planned for our space program. That is an awesome thing, and uh, uh, that is something I can definitely talk to uh, the library about. We have some recent changes uh, in uh, library staffing, so unfortunately. Uh, the two people who are working with me on the uh, um, Star Trek uh, Club and the other, uh, like, uh, sci-fi and uh, um, space science-related things are no longer with the library. So I'm trying to sort that out. But that's an excellent component to suggest uh, also, to have that as part of what we're doing. And uh, um, I might be just calling it the space division or, or something. Uh, just to keep the focus uh, there in outer space. Yeah, I know there's a lot of, 
you know, the, like all industries, I know libraries everywhere are undergoing a lot of, you know, different changes in focus. Um, you know, as 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 many libraries are are kind of broadening their focus to be almost community centers, um, you know, and, and there's more interest in in some of the like we we were saying the the maker space and you know um, things like that and uh, and 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 we're seeing um, a lot of our self check kiosks. Um, which of course, where I was, they said that that wouldn't involve, you know, uh, reducing the staffing. But you know, one one sometimes wonders. Um, but we're seeing, you know, kiosks everywhere, um, you know, from convenience stores to supermarkets yes. to, you know, and and while I'm um, while I do understand that they can be very convenient and quicker. Um, I, I also understand the feeling that, you know, in some ways we're kind of losing some personal contact, um, you know, um, when it's taken to the degree of when you see more kiosks than you do cashiers. Um, I know at, at the library, uh, many people that, that, that we, you know, that are our customers, um, who are tend to be on the older side have said that you know that they have no intention of using the kiosks um, because they come in not only just to pick up their books, their DVDs, their CDs, um, but to have a little conversation with the people um, that is at the circulation desk or the reference desk, and to you know even if it's brief, just talk to them and you know and then sometimes those conversations mean a lot because they talk about more than just oh did you read this book or how did you like this movie or oh I saw this movie too or you know or helping a customer uh, pick out a book or you know find something from the same author so um, you know it's, it's the human contact and I think you can you can never really replace that, or at least you shouldn't. Right. I, I agree with you. And uh, libraries are evolving into something new, and uh, um, we're watching the stops and starts. It hasn't gotten there yet, but I'm glad that it's moving, they're moving forward because uh, people do need that human touch. They do need that sense of uh, community. Uh, they do need that sense of belonging and connection. And uh, libraries mm -hmm. are phenomenal institutions that, uh, do uh, preserve them. Yeah, I, I mean, I know um, while I'm going to be very excited and happy to go back to my my old vocation, um, there are things that I will miss about, you know, my role, especially in the last year. I was actually doing library work. Um, it, it's not something that I particularly sought out to do, but like all of us, we sometimes do a job because we need to do yes. a job. Um, but there are things that I will miss, um, certainly. Uh, it, it wasn't, you know, terrible, but it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. But I will miss the customers. I will miss those conversations with, with people that I saw on pretty much a daily basis. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of people came in um, 
like every day to do, you know, to either utilize our computers, um, you know, or or at least periodically to pick out a new CD or, you know, to, to pick out their holds and, 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 and things like that. And, uh, you know, um, I'll, I'll miss those customers and I'll miss uh, a good number of the people that I worked with, um, you know, who, who are, who like me, we're always trying to do our best to, to make the customers happy. Um, you know, and I also learned a lot, you know, from, from some of our customers and, and it was always gratifying to find that, you know, whenever I saw somebody and they were taking out Star Trek discovery, uh, or some other Star Trek thing. And we would, of course, I would of course get into a conversation with them about, you know, you know, and, and actually try to recruit them, I, you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, you know, and then there would be, somebody would pick up a DVD of a sci-fi movie. It was like, gee, I, I didn't even know this was out or didn't even know about this. I'm going to have to take this out too, you know? Um, so, you know, um, I'll, I'll miss some of those, especially those, those folks. Um, so, you know, it, it is a nice connection to make. And, uh, yes, most I, 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 so. And I'm These kiosks might talk someday, but I still don't think it's going to be the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm sure the challenger is going to uh, still, uh, uh, through the challenger, you're still going to be in touch with the libraries and be doing things with the libraries uh, that are challenger related. Yeah. But the adventure will Absolutely. continue. We'll, we'll still be part of Fan Nation, uh, which is in November. Um, I was on that planning committee, and uh, in fact, when I go in tomorrow, I have to, to let them know. Um, in fact, I still have information that I want to provide them about uh, uh, a potential guest, uh, somebody that we met, ironically, at another library function at the Burlington County Library's Fandom Fest that we did a, a few weeks ago before I went on vacation. And uh, that was a lot of fun. That was pretty much their version of our Fan Nation event. It was, you know, multi-genre, you know, comic books, sci-fi, um, gaming, uh, you know, everything that our fan nation is. And I think they're, they're both going on their fifth year. Um, and we happened to come across, there was a room that had all the clubs, uh, together this year. They did it a little differently. And we sat across, um, two, two nice, very young, nice ladies who were, you know, kind of representing the cosplay aspect of, of fandom. And uh, uh, there was one who I, who, who I felt like an idiot because I said, wow, you look, you make a fantastic black widow because she's wearing this like black cat suit. And she had like kind of a red wig and I didn't know why she had a red kerchief on. And she, she smiled and said, yeah, but I'm not black widow. I'm some character from an anime, which I'm not familiar with. So, um, but anyway, her, her friend who sat with her as we were talking had said that they go to a lot of Ren fairs and, you know, conventions and things, and that she's a, uh interpreter for the deaf, and that she specializes oh, wow. in, in um, interpreting for at, at 
you know, at fandom events that, you know, like the Ren Fairs and conventions. And I quickly got her information. I thought, wow, you know, I'll, I'll try to get you to come to our Fan Nation event. So we had flyers there that we were not only promoting Challenger, but, you know, um, and, and that was the county away, so it's a little bit of a, you know, a distance. But they, they treat us so well there that um, I think it's been our third or fourth year that we've done that. So um, we were, you know, promoting our Fan Nation, you know. But we'll be back at, at that, and, um, you know, that's always a great way to meet fans. Um, and 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 we're I, just today, since I'm still technically on vacation, um, I went off and, and spoke to uh, our one of our local movie theater managers because they're having the Fathom event uh, where they're putting Star Trek The Motion Picture on the big screen. Um, wow. You know, in in, ce- in celebration of its 40th anniversary, uh, which technically is in December, but they're doing it. I guess they're they're coinciding it with the, you know, the September anniversary of Star Trek itself. So um, we hope to um, to to be there to sort of introduce the movie, uh, and in particular our good friend Stephen Lance, uh, who I. Um, who I have to actually ask if he's available. Uh, Stephen Lance um, is a good friend of Challengers. Um, he actually appeared in Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, as oh, wow. an extra. Um, but he had some very interesting stories to tell about that experience because he, he got to crash in with uh, James Doohan. Um, Steve had been like a, a host of the early 1970s, Star Trek conventions, and he usually in, uh, hosted the, um, uh, the the costume contest in particular, and uh, and he was very no well known for his knowledge of Star Trek trivia. So he became kind of known in, in in fandom convention circles, and when they had some kind of um, I don't know contest or something for somebody to become a uh, an extra, you know, in the big scene uh, in uh, the, I don't, I guess it would be the rec room, or it would be the rec room, but, you know, that huge scene where Kirk is telling everybody, we're going after this big cloud, um, that scene where, you know, like, there's a bunch of, like, 50 people or so, and there's aliens, and the, the whole crew is in there. Um, he's, he's, uh, a vegan, I believe. Um, and, um, you know, he's got this big prosthetic head, uh, that he said they took all afternoon putting on him. Um, but he, he, you know, it's a dream come true for any of us that, you know, even to be in five seconds of the movie, you know, and, and to have before, but but you know um, somehow he got friendly with with James Doohan and he said I you know he talked to James Doohan and, and asked him about uh, um, you know where he should stay and James Doohan said I know exactly where you're going to stay you're going to stay with us you know oh, with wow. his family and and that was like you know he's got some 
so I'm sure he's going to share that story if uh, if he's available and he'll be with us at the theater. Of course, I'm jumping the gun because I only approached the theater today and uh, and and provided information about ourselves. Um, of course, they they should know us because we've done we've done promotions with that particular theater before. But as you know, movie theater managers, you know, change yeah. as often as as our socks. So uh, you know, you know, nobody there was kind of knew knew that. So um, they and of course they have to get clearance to their regional level. So uh, hopefully they'll they'll simply allow us to to come in that it's it's uh the 15th which is a sunday and uh at one o'clock and we would uh be in costume you know uniform and and hopefully have steve with us to do the actual spiel you know um and and make it a little bit more fun than than just just screening the movie um so um you know, opportunities come up like that, and you just, you know, you give it a shot. You know, the worst that could happen is they say, well, thanks, but no thanks. But I don't see them doing that. I, I see them wanting to, you know, uh, enhance it because anybody that's going to blow $15 on, on watching Star Trek, the motion picture, right. um, is definitely going to be diehard Star Trek people. Um, just as months ago we went and and I think I talked about it on the show here, the Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine documentary. Um, you know, there was a lot of diehard people there, too. And, uh, you know, not a lot of people, but about 30, 35. Um, and that gave us an opportunity to, to just hand out our, you know, some flyers and talk to people before the documentary started and, you know, remind them about, you know, what we do and where we meet, you know, things like that. So, uh, you know, plus I would, I, I kind of look forward to seeing uh, the most, the, the motion picture on the big screen again. Uh, I still remember when I first saw it, uh, you know, so I was, I was in high school at the time. And so, and, and I believe I saw it in the Menlo Park Mall theater that, that might still be there. I don't know, but um, yeah, that, and that, my wife has never incredible. seen it. The first one, no. She has never seen the Star Trek the motion picture, and I, I, you know, I said, and you call yourself a Star Trek fan, you know, <laughs> but um, so I tease her about it. But I said, well, you know, we're you're uh, you're definitely gonna go see it. You're gonna see the first time. I mean, of course, we own it, and uh, much like Discovery, we've never had the chance to just sit down and like, oh, let's let's make tonight the night that we watch it. So I said, well, now you know you're going to see it on the big screen, like like most people did at that time. So, uh, so I remember when it came out too. I've been looking forward to it uh, for a very long time, and I had read the book that. Uh, um, it had Roddenberry's name on the cover, but I believe David Gerald of Tribble's fame uh, uh, actually yeah. wrote it. And I was wondering how they would put this on the screen without an R rating. Have, did you read the book? Yes, and I do know the scenes you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. 
uh, especially scenes with Aaliyah. Um, but, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the book w- went into a lot more detail about a lot of things, and uh, I, I almost wish that they could have included, you know, some of some of the background that, that was in the book. Um, yes. The, the, and for some reason, they insisted on trying to get, I think, Motion picture was actually rated G. Um, I might be mistaken on that, but you know, I, it wasn't even PG. But I, I could be wrong. But I thought that it had a very, you know, I, well, I don't think there was such a rating as PG thirteen at that time. Back then, um, yeah, maybe not. Yeah, back then in nineteen seventy nine, but. Uh, uh, yeah, well, I think I think we'd all love to have gone back and, you know, edited uh, the motion picture a bit here and there. But it, it really was quite a, a spectacular movie. Uh, I mean, even though it might have had its slow moments, the music, and I think we were all so excited um, just to see the new Enterprise and see yeah. everybody back. Yeah, um you know, I know I walked away from the theater, like, so excited, so very satisfied. Um, I, you know, I don't think I noticed how long the Enterprise, you know, uh, sequence was. Uh, because, like Kirk, I think all of us were vicariously just as thrilled as Kirk was yeah. at that time. Just to, to, to see what was going on. So, uh, I, I remember I wasn't bothered by that either. Um, the uh, the thing that uh, like I'm watching Star Trek now with fresh eyes because I haven't seen a lot of the the shows in a very long time and or at all. Like for instance with uh, Discovery, uh, Discovery, um, I I liked more than I thought I would like it. Um, however, the the flaw that kept uh, hitting against my suspension of disbelief was that they. Um, would pick the weirdest times to have deep, heartfelt conversations. You know, it's like everything's falling apart, uh, and their attention really should be on the emergency that they're facing. Uh, and instead, they're getting into these really, like, personal uh, uh, conversations, which I couldn't see happening, um, you know, like in a real-life situation. And with the Star yeah. Trek movies, the 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 thing that kept hitting against my uh, suspension of disbelief is every, they were introducing new characters, and then they'd always kill off or do away with the new characters. So they had a very easy way of slowly giving us a, a new Enterprise crew uh, that would have organically developed, and instead those are the characters they chose uh, to uh, either uh, kill or disinclude. Yeah, I I I, I do see. I see your 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 point on that. Um, I, I was feeling that same thing um, as we were watching that. Because I think Savic and uh, what do you call it and uh, uh, Peter and uh, um, all the characters that they introduced in the beginning, and even Decker and Ilya. Um, those would have made uh, you know, a phenomenal crew had they allowed them to uh, remain, had they found a way of not uh, um, disincluding yeah. them. Yeah. 
Well, and, and when you think about it, Gene kind of recycled Decker in the Leah uh, yes. in the form of, of Riker and Deanna. Deanna, uh, yeah. You know, because, you know, Deanna, instead of having that, that, you know, she had an empathetic power in a different way. Um, but, you know, Riker was, you know, because they had the same kind of relationship with each other. They were past, you know, uh, they had had, you know, had met previously and had this relationship going on, um, which mirrored Riker and and uh, and, and Deanna Troy, um, and and it was a shame that what happened to the character of um, Zahn, who originally, when before Star Trek the motion picture was to become the motion picture, and it was going to be part of this whole Paramount network. Um, and I, I forgot now what it was supposed to be called, Star Trek, The New Voyages, or... or yeah, I don't remember it. Or Whatever it was going to be, it was going to be a TV series. Leonard Nimoy had, had opted out for whatever reason at that time, uh, and they, they decided they were going to replace him with uh, another younger Vulcan named Zahn, who... Um, when, when, you know, with the success of Star Wars, of course, and Paramount said, well, you know, forget, forget making it as a TV series. We're going to go big screen. Um, and then, of course, Leonard Nimoy became interested again, and they had to ditch Zahn. They did have the actor who was to play Zahn, because they even had makeup tests and everything. Um, he was in a a uh, short scene on the Epsilon station, which I think got absorbed by Viger, so I don't think, you know, he got killed off as well. Yeah. So, uh, but at least he got, you know, they gave him one tiny consolation prize. I mean, here he was going to be a, a, a cast member of, of this new series that, that didn't come to be. Uh, so at least they threw him the bone of, hey, you could and he was playing a human. He was, you know, he didn't even get the ears. So, uh, you know. Uh, but but Savick, I was disappointed that Savick didn't come back in um, Star Trek V. Would have would have been nice to see her. Yes, it would. Uh, and we didn't get to see. And we almost saw her in Star Trek VI, but they were. I, I'm almost glad we didn't get to see her in that because. They were originally wanted to to have Savick, you know, in the role of Valaris, or rather, you know, not the role, but you know, it was going to be her character that would have turned out to betray Starfleet mm. and the Federation. And it, word had already gotten out that that was the you know, and like, or 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 maybe the producers realized the fans would go crazy because. They liked the character of Savick, even though she was played by two different actresses. Um, you know, Savick was much beloved, and um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that they they instead had Kim Cattrall as you know as Valaris, and and uh, you know, Valaris was the one who betrayed. You know. Um, yes. But I always wish that they had brought Savick back. You know, in, in Next Gen, I mean. They, they brought Robin Curtis back as a Vulcan, of all things. So it was almost like 
you know, almost kind of an, <laughs> an insult. It was like, you brought her back, you know, you know, you brought her into the show, and you didn't even make her savage. You made her, you know, you Somebody made her else. kind of a bad Vulcan. Yeah. In the two-part episode where where she ends up um, having the ancient Vulcan uh, artifact that could enhance your your mental abilities, um, so um, you know missed opportunities. I, I and plus there was an implication that Spock might have married Savick. You know, uh, I, yeah, I, don't I remember know. that too. There was speculation because there's an episode where, and it, it might have been in in the episode Sarek, which was just on H and I the you know last night in fact, um, where Riker said, "Have you ever met Ambassador Sarek before?" And he says, "Yes, I met him at his son's wedding, which would have been Spock's mm. wedding." Yeah, you know, uh, I don't think it's Cybok because Cybok was. You know, Cybok was dead at that point, so, uh, you know. But um, I don't know. I know. That's another another storyline that uh, will, will maybe be picked up by a book or a comic book, you know. But that, and now uh, that they have uh, alternate timelines and a multiverse uh, as well, um, then uh, all of these unexplored stories can be explored and uh, and not messed with the uh, main continuity. Uh, I'm looking at the clock. We only have we're both in ten minutes uh, left. Uh, so uh, um, I guess uh, let's update on what's going on. Discovery here has been renewed for a third season, and uh, there's a graphic novel coming out uh, based on the comic book series that uh, shows you what happens after season two. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, I believe there's also going to be a, um, a prequel to Star Trek Picard that might help set the scene. Um, okay. And I believe there's also a tidbit that we may see in one of the, the Star Trek shorts and I don't know when that might air, but just like they did last year, they threw a few of, the, you know, like a 20-minute type mini episode um, on in between the end of season one and the beginning of season two. They're going to do that again, and apparently they have several of these mini episodes that will feature uh, Anson Mount as, you know, Captain Pike, uh, Ethan Peck as Spock, and... Um, number one, um, Rebecca, uh, I can't think of her name now, but you know, um, the former Mrs. John Stamos, um, and, and of course, uh, our favorite, you know, X-Men person, uh, Mystique, the original Mystique, as opposed to Jennifer, uh, Lawrence, but, um, uh, you know, in the X-Men movies, but, uh, She'll be in it as well, you know, and it'll focus on the Enterprise. Um, that, that is awesome. So, People have been demanding it. He was a very popular character on Discovery. Yeah. Uh, and Spock. Well, we, saw and him we saw him and uh, and they did a panel uh, together at Shore Leave in July. And um, 
you know, everybody was, was saying, you know, you guys did such a great job. You know, we hope that you'll, you know, continue. And they were trying to get, you know, some information out of them. We all were. And Anson Mount was saying, well, all he could say was there's negotiations. And he says, I can't say much because we're still negotiating. <laughs> you know? Right. So, um, so at least that gave us hope that there was going to be something in the works. And clearly there there is. So, you know, um, at least the shorts. Because uh, he's doing, they're, they're both busy with some projects some films and uh and i think ethan's doing a uh, a short series on a canadian you know uh network or something um but uh you know i i'm looking forward to seeing them again as 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 many of us are um and now the other big news before we go is that uh um CBS and Viacom are reemerged, so uh, (laughs) presumably that will be a a better thing for the merchandising and for the the, the weird rights and continuity. Um, There's still these wild rumors of, of, you know, of Quentin Tarantino uh, and his Star Trek movie, which, um, you know, if it happens, I, I can't wait to see what he does. You know? <laughs> yeah, I feel the same. And also there's a, car, a Star Trek cartoon coming out, I heard. Like Below Decks, I think it's called. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I've seen the graphics of it. Um, I, I don't watch, uh, what, what's it called? Something and Morty. Um, Rick and Morty. From the same people. Rick and Morty. Yeah. I, I'm not familiar with that, but I've heard it's very good. And, um, you know, that's in that, that kind of cartoon style, animation style. And uh, I'm looking forward to that as well. You know, it's the first time we've seen anything like that. Apparently there's another animation project, which in the works, but we haven't heard what that's about and, you know, if that's going to be of, of a humorous tone like this one or if it's going to be something totally different. Um, but that's been referenced. And, of course, we're still getting more tidbits uh, about, you know, Star Trek Picard. Um, and Section 31, too. Yeah, Section 31. So we are seeing some, you know, some exciting things being planned. You know, the it was it may have been disappointing that we didn't get to see another Kelvinverse Star Trek movie just yet. But um, I, I, I think that, you know, um, I wouldn't be surprised if this Quentin Tarantino, you know, because uh, that was supposed to be after the one that was planned. He wasn't going to do that one. Um, but, uh, you know, since that one is pretty much scrapped, since they can't get Christopher, you know, uh, Chris Pine back or Chris Hemsworth, mm-hmm. um, who knows? I mean, and, and, Although they were saying it would have to be a Kelvinverse movie, uh, but that, they were saying that before the merger. So, right, you know, I, uh, anything's possible. It could be a whole different crew, um, you know, from what we from, from what we're familiar with. I I know that if they can't get Chris Pine back, there's no sense of bringing back the 
that crew, you know, um, because if you don't have Kirk, you, you know, there's just, just no sense of doing it. Well, right. Well, we've reached the end of our journey for today. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule uh, to come on. It's always a pleasure. And how can people uh, join the adventures of the USS Challenger? They can email email me at uh, warpspeed at ussschallenger.org. Um, I, I, I just remembered that I... We have a card that has that address on it, and we're supposed to be using it, and I usually give a, a whole different address. Um, and, of course, visit us on Facebook, like us on Facebook, USS Challenger, and there's uh, www.ussschallenger.org, our website. We'll keep you up to date with all our activities. And, of course, um, region7.com has information on what all our chapters in Region 7 are doing, and then there's SFI.com, um, I'm sorry, SFI.org uh, will tell you everything about Starfleet uh, of all our many chapters throughout the world. So um, wherever you're listening, you know, check us out. There may be a chapter near you, so find out more about us. Thank you. Uh, always awesome, Bob. Uh, safe journeys, and I will talk to you very soon. I have some ideas I want to bounce off of you, so I'll do that in an email or a, a PM. Uh, until next time, be well. You as well. Thank you so much, Hercules. You take care. You too. Uh, we're going to listen to Becca Kelso's um, Contact Strange Worlds, which may or may not have something to do with science fiction. And then we'll be back with the scholars from the edge of time, Nicholas Dyack and Michelle Brittany.
Invictus, and I am greatly honored to announce our next segment, Scholars from the Edge of Time, hosted by Nicholas Dyack and Michelle Brittany. Tonight, their guest is Lee Murray. Greetings and welcome to Voice of Olympus. Good evening, Hercules. How are you? I'm doing great, Michelle. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, I'm hello, gonna... uh, this is Hi, Nicholas. How you doing? I'm all right, sir. Uh, we're excited that uh, Lee is on. We've known Lee yeah. for a long time, so uh, we're excited to talk to her. And I'll be very excited to be listening. I hand you the lightning bolt of Mount Olympus, and uh, the show is yours. I'll be here in case you need me. That sounds great. Thank you so much, Hercules. Um, and so, thank you. Hi, are you on? Hi, how are you? Excellent. So good to hear your voice across the aisle. And from Tuesday. 
and from Tuesday in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm calling you from Tuesday afternoon. So how are the gods of, of Olympus today? Well, Michelle has written a little introduction for you. Yeah, so we'll we'll go ahead and get started with that, and then we'll jump into um, our hour of uh, conversation with you, Lee. So um, for listeners who may not be familiar with Lee, Lee Murray is an award-winning writer of fantasy, science fiction, horror, and speculative fiction for both adults and young adults. She has written the popular military thriller Into series that follows New Zealand Defense Force Sergeant Tane McKenna, and which has been described by Tor.com as similar to the film Predator, but turned up by 50 levels. <laughs> she has also been she has also been co-authoring with fellow New Zealander Dave Robert. Oh, I'm sorry, Dan Robert the supernatural crime noir uh, series, The Path of Raw. When Lee isn't writing, she's usually editing anthologies, including the 2019 Australian Shadows Award-winning Hell Hole, an anthology of subterranean horror that has also been nominated for a Bram Stoker Award earlier this year. And she is the acquiring editor at Omnium Gatherum, uh, publishing, uh, actually located here in Southern California. Lee gives back to her community by mentoring writers, including having co-founded a young new writers uh, uh, organization. She lives with her family in, I love this, land of the long white cloud, where she conjures up deliciously thrilling and scary stories from her office overlooking a cow paddock. Welcome, Lee. Thank you for that introduction, Michelle. I should have you walk two steps in front of me and give that introduction wherever I go because it sounded so good. <laughs> well, I would be happy to do that any time. It would be my honor. <laughs> so um, I guess we'll go ahead and get started with a little bit of uh, questions around your background, your writing journey. And I think, you know, where we start is, well, what led you to writing with purpose? Uh, you know, that's a really good question, and and nobody has really asked me that, um, Michelle, because I I've always kind of scribbled. You know, I wrote I wrote you know letters back home telling stories of what I was doing, or you know, so I've always written bits and pieces, but I never really started writing with purpose until. Um, my children were small and I was away from home. I was actually living in the United States and I kind of started a story to write myself back home. So so I used it as a little bit of kind of therapy, if you like, cheap therapy. And um, And then my husband kind of said to me, you know, you like this writing thing and you should just really do it you should give it a go and and I think that's something you know especially for someone like me who's come who came to writing late in a sense you know actually putting deciding I was a writer and 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 sending my work out for publication is it's never too late you know you should the sooner is better but it's never too late to start so um so he kind of said you know you like this and you should really you're good at it and maybe you should 
you should think about doing this and and that was great to have that support and just that little prod in the right direction and so off I went so it was really not until about sort of 10 or 12 years ago that I started writing with purpose and uh, Lee, what was your first story? Um, my first published story is uh, was a short story about uh, which was published in Takahe. Uh, oh gosh, such a long time ago now. I think it was about ten years ago or eleven years ago, and it was about the dangers of eugenics once. Um, insurance companies get a hold of it so it was a little story about a family who are expecting a new baby and just just the dangers of what might happen if insurance companies decided that they they could have a say in in you know which were the most desirable babies to have and so a quite a chilling little story and it actually got picked up recently for reprint in a in a um, speculative magazine called New Orbit so nice that it's still you know still relevant um, but my first actual book was is a little book called Battle of the Birds which is the story I wrote when I was living in Wisconsin. Um, and it was really to help my daughter and myself feel connected to New Zealand. We were both a bit homesick, so I wrote a story that wrote us back into um, into New Zealand. And the story is about a little girl who lies on an effigy mound in in Madison um, at the Edgewater College, which actually exists. It's a it's a it's an eagle mound, um, and she fell asleep on the mound, and she wakes up. At the, the, when she wakes up she's on the seagull and it's flying her back to New Zealand but there's a bit of a mistake and it flies her back a thousand years too soon and she turns up in the middle of a battle between our New Zealand flightless birds and the flighted birds and um, and there's a, we have an extinct massive eagle in our own in our own um, history and so I was able to incorporate those different mythologies into the story so it was a lot of fun to write that and it, it did very well and so that kind of launched my writing career so yeah that was my first story now Lee those those two early stories are I'm going to use the broad term uh, fantastique here, you know, to kind of encompass speculative fiction, horror, and so on and so forth. So what what made you dive into that genre instead of some other genres? Um, well, you know, I kind of have dabbled around, actually, Nick. Um, something that's probably less well-known is a book called A Dash of Reality, which is a book about writing, which is a book about running, I'm sorry. Um, and it's a, it's, you know, it's chiclet. So I kind of dabbled around. I sort of just wrote what I, what what was fun, uh, and I still do. And I think it's just, you know, I think the thing about speculative writing is that there are so many themes and so many ideas that you can that you can explore. And the world is always evolving, and we're we're always facing new challenges. You know, climate change and um, you know, social change and political change, and so there's always ways of showing and you know telling those stories through through the medium of speculative fiction. And there's a little bit of um, you know we can try out these ideas in a safe place. You know, it doesn't have to be our world; it can be a world. And so there's a little bit of distance that that creates. So I think speculative fiction allows us this opportunity to to try out new ideas and things and say what might happen if um, we did this or we did that and so there's this this wonderful opportunity and I just think that the richness of being able to do that 
while having this little bit of distance is is, is very freeing. Um, I often use the example of you know when the zombie apocalypse has come. If you've written about the zombie apocalypse, then you've got some idea of how you might survive it, you know, <laughs> especially if you're a slow runner like me, you know, you've got to look for the, the most obvious, the easiest ways to survive, and so when you've already thought those things out, then, then you've got an opportunity to, to make it, and so when we're looking at other issues like climate change and social change, then, then trying out those ideas is on paper um, and story is always is, is, is an effective way of looking at and, and, and looking for solutions. Well, uh, for you specifically, though, since these are kind of your stomping grounds to try out ideas, are there particular themes or uh, agendas or auteur elements that are distinctly like lead that you want to accomplish or explore through your stories, like any very specific stuff? No, I don't think I generally set out to do anything in particular. I might have a character or an idea or something I've, you know, inspiration comes from everywhere. So I'm not sure I specifically set out to to explore any particular themes, although I do love to bring New Zealand into my into my fiction as much as I can. I, I think New Zealand's mythology and our culture is just so unique and so you know, rich, that if I can, I try and bring that experience into my stories, stories as much as I can. So I think, you know, people ask me what kind of writer I am, and I generally say, well, I'm a New Zealand writer because most of my stories, or I think 99% of my stories have that New Zealand flavour and, and backdrop and cultural sort of layering over the top, so... Yeah, um, I don't know that there's any one particular theme because I think I do like monsters, but monsters are very good at being um, a metaphor for something else. So I do like monsters as a way of exploring um, certain certain aspects of society, but not not specifically. I don't go out and say, "Oh, I think I need to write a story about you know feminism." It just kind of happens. And Lisa, that brings up uh, an interesting thing. As you were getting into writing with purpose, can you talk about who were who were some of your in early influences in developing your own writing style and your own voice? Well, that's always a good question, and there's so many people that you know. As a writer, you read so much, and so so many people influence you. Um, I have to say my dad, um, because, you know, even as just a tiny, tiny baby dad would read to us and, and you know, read to me. And, and, of course, I didn't get to choose necessarily the stories that he chose for me, but he chose some fabulous stories. And he used to read them with an amazing voice, you know, and just bring those stories to life for me. And, of course, you know, it would be one more story for before bed and just one more story. Um, and And that... That stopped over time, obviously, because I learned to read myself. But I think Dad's influence has a lot to do with it and the stories he he chose to read to us um, and made up for us even. And then from there, you know, when I started, I mean, obviously I read so widely and I, I read what everyone else read in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you know, just all the classics. And and um, and there wasn't a lot of, us of, new, of stories for New Zealand children that had New Zealand context. So perhaps... The lack of those things might have made might have influenced me um, towards writing more for you know m more stories with a New Zealand 
context. So, you know, so there are the influences and then also the lack of influence, if you like, that, that, that probably affected what I've, what I've gone on to write. Also, you know, when I started writing, I was very lucky. I joined a local writing group and I, I met um, a lady called Jenny Argante, who's a fabulous writing mentor here in, in the Bay of Plenty. And so she, she kind of set me on my way. And then I was lucky enough to get a mentorship with the New Zealand Society of Authors with a, new, with a, a very iconic New Zealand writer named Graham Lay. And um, Graham writes right across the board. I think he's written 60 books. Um, for young adults, and he writes uh, creative nonfiction, incredibly good writer, and he, I was very, very lucky to have him as my mentor, and mentorship is forever, so I still met, occasionally contact him and say, what do you think about this, Graham, and he's so helpful, um, so I was very lucky to have his influence on my writing, and then from then on, I've, you know, as, as I've as I've kind of jumped into the speculative field, you create this wonderful network and speculative writers, well, I'm not telling you anything, you, you know this already, that they're just so warm and welcoming and helpful um, and they're just, there's room for you in speculative writing. You know, there's room. They welcome you and they're, they're, they're open to helping you. So I've had some lovely, lovely, very, very accomplished writers help me sort of build my career and and give me advice and and um and I'm obviously very influenced by those those writers as well. Well, Lee, on the subject of writers influencing writers, I do have to say that you're one of my hero writers. Oh, Nick, you're so sweet. <laughs> so, um Next. <laughs> Nick, Nick, Nick pointed right back to me like, okay, next question. <laughs> After that, I was just I, I mean, interjecting. And I know, I know. I mean, I I feel the same way. So, you know, you have your have oh, that's, that's so kind. Well, you guys can talk. You're fabulous writers and fabulous supporters of uh, speculative fiction and popular culture, and um, and you're so knowledgeable about these things. So. You know, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. That speculative community and is just so welcoming. Don't you? Don't you agree? Oh, I I very much agree. Especially you know, getting into the Horror Writers Association, being co-chair with the Anne Radcliffe Academic Conference, and how people are just so open and interested, and how it's always very friendly, a, a sharing of ideas. Um, so, and that's that's how we met Lee is through the Horror yeah. Writers Association at StokerCon a couple years ago, and she's been a big champion of our Anne Radcliffe Academic Conference and all of our endeavors. Yeah, well, why wouldn't you be? And I mean, I think you know you're right on the cusp of something exciting because you know while horror has always been very popular look at the sudden sort of resurgence just recently in the interest in horror in sort of popular culture and on, on you know we're seeing it on the screens we're seeing it in print graphic novels it's just having it's just so i don't know what it is why it's suddenly perhaps perhaps it's something to do with the, the way the world is and the ver the unrest that we're seeing in the world at the moment and this big move towards change so um maybe that's the reason why but certainly certainly the the horror writers association is a hugely vibrant um 
association. I've been very, very lucky to be taken into the fold there, and uh, I, like, I've met some wonderful people like yourselves. So, um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a great community. I, I would love to touch on Lee because I don't know how many listeners that we have that are that familiar with New Zealand, the politics, the, sh- the social um, climate. And you have kind of a unique perspective. You, you uh, travel over here to the U.S. at least once a year. Um, you've actually lived here. Can you kind of give a little bit of a description of New Zealand political and social climate and how that influences New Zealand writing? And, and of course, more specifically to you. Oh, my goodness, that's a big question, Michelle. Um, the political climate here, uh, it, New, Zealand, New Zealand politics is uh, very moderate, um, moderate to liberal. Both of our parties, I would say, are moderate to liberal, so our main party. So, it's, so we don't have the very polarised um, polarized, uh, politics that you have in the United States. So that already makes it slightly different. We're a little bit more of a homogenized community. I'm not saying we're perfect. I mean, certainly we have racial issues and, um, you know, we'd all like to see women paid more and, and those kinds of things. So, we're, you know, we're, we're juggling medical and trying to, um, everybody, you know, everyone gets a fair share of, of, of the pie. So we're in, you know, we have this, we're facing those same things. We have a lot of cows, so climate change um, and burping cows is a big issue here in New Zealand. So we're, all, we're also very interested in climate change and protecting um, our, our national treasures, which are our forests and our lakes. Um, and New Zealand is one of these uh, very rare, um, rare uh, places where we, we have... Um, been able to write into our legislation that certain um, geographical features have become people in their own right, so entities in their own right. And this stems from our Maori um, culture which in which a place can become your ancestor. So uh, Maori people consider that place is you know, part of their their whakapapa, their their ancestry, their history, and so, for example, if you live underneath a mountain, that mountain becomes your ancestor because that is where your your um, culture is born. Your family, your tribe has been born and has been nurtured, if you like. So, so that is an amazing difference between our New Zealand culture and perhaps anywhere else in the world. I, I'm not sure. I think it's fairly similar for the Native American culture, in fact. Um, and so, but we've actually written that into law. So, um, the Yudawera Forest, where I set into the mist, is actually now an entity in its own right and protected as if a per- as if it were a person. So that provides it with some incredible protections. And, of course, this makes for a very interesting opportunity to write into story. Um, so I, I kind of, this happened actually just after I wrote Into the Mist, but the last story in the, in the trilogy, Into the Ashes, does cover this issue of ancestor and, and um, our landscape as part of our ancestor. So that perhaps is one of the biggest differences between our sort of world view, if you like, of New Zealand landscape being quite different to perhaps other countries. And that 
drives perhaps a, a need to protect our environment a little more. So climate change is a big issue here in New Zealand and I think we're seeing a bit of a move and um, hopefully uh, that will make, uh, we'll be able to lead the way uh, you know, in the world on, on, on that score. Obviously it's a, it's a big concern because we have fisheries and we have, um, you know, we have uh, a, a, an, an economy that's run on agriculture and, and dairy and uh, beef, so you know those those and also sheep and wool, and so those things obviously have an impact on the on the climate. Um, so you know, I guess that that those things you'll hear you'll see in our stories, and and in the story that I write with uh, Dan Raybart's the Path of Ra series, we we write that in the near future Auckland, and we're looking at things like urban urban spread. Auckland is one of the is our biggest city. It's not our capital, but it is our biggest city, and it spreads across. Um, a, a big area and it has about a million people, which I know in America that doesn't sound like a lot, but in New Zealand that's a that's a big number or a million and a half. And so, um, so we we're addressing that urban sprawl and um, and in in building um, and how we deal with pop transport and that kind of thing in those stories as a backdrop to those stories. Um, yes, yeah, so no. there's lots of opportunity to use our our political and social situation to to inform our stories, if you like. Now, this is a really good segue to talk about your book specifically, but I do got one more question that kind of ties into this. It's because you know a lot of uh, the stories you've written are are steep into that. You know, I've read a, a couple of books in the Into the series, you know, about ancestry ties to the to the land and. Uh, Maori culture, but the question I want to ask before we segue into your um, work specifically is, is there any sort of barriers that you and your uh, works have had to uh, cross in order to be, like, accessible to, say, uh, an Occidental audience, you know, over here in the States? Yeah, that's a good question, Nick. I mean, I guess you'd have to ask the readers that. Uh, I think I think personally that um, overseas overseas readers are really interested in our in in our culture. They they don't want they're interested in reading a story set somewhere different. I mean when you when you read a story you want to be transported into a new world and live somewhere different. You you want to experience an adventure somewhere different. And so for a lot of people New Zealand is different and exotic and a long way away. And you know most people think we're you know, we're, we're um, populated by hobbits, Sophie. <laughs> so, you know, I think I think that there is an openness to reading about other cultures, and so overseas readers are perhaps less prejudiced, if you like, about reading about New Zealand. So, that's an opportunity that it's that's nice to be able to exploit, um, because there isn't a lot. There isn't a lot of adventure stories or speculative stories that are set in New Zealand. So, um, so perhaps that just offers that little bit of exotic, um, I guess, I guess. And in terms of barriers, uh, you know, one of the things that I often say is that, um, you know, you have to be really careful when you're writing about cultures, other cultures, and um, Maori culture is a living culture, and, and so their mythology, while I may say it's mythology, for, for some people that is their belief, that's their faith. 
So we have to be really careful because, you know, when we say when we say something is mythology, because actually for a lot of people that isn't mythology, that is reality. So obviously that means a certain level of sensitivity when we're writing um, about those things. So I have some sensitivity readers and, and I talk and, you know, I've lived here all my life and so I have lots of friends and family and, you know, um, who, who are Maori so that who can look at what I've written and say, hmm, yep, okay, that's sensitive. I don't necessarily agree with this aspect, but, you know, you haven't trodden on or done anything too offensive and I think that's important. I'm not saying that, I, that I'm... Um, whitewashing it or or censoring it, but in general, I like to be sensitive and correct, accurate <laughs> as far as I can. So, um, and everyone has a different brings a different perspective to a story. But that while that's not a barrier, it's something that I do have to be conscious of because while I've lived here, you know, while this is my country and I'm, you know, my family come from here and I've, I've been, we've been here for generations and generations and generations, that doesn't mean I can just trot all over somebody else's religion. Um, so I have to be a little careful. So while it's not a barrier, it's still something I need to be conscious of. Well, you do make it pretty accessible to us uh, over here in the, the States, not just so I'm going to use this as a segue into your books proper, in that you uh, write, you know, one, very well, two, very engaging stories. And at least I'm going to go with the, the Into series, uh, Into the Ashes, Into the Mist, Into the Sounds, and Into the Darkness, that, you know, at the end of three of those books, Into the Darkness is a short story. It doesn't really count uh, for this. But, um, you know, you provide a glossary of terms, uh, for different uh, cultural references that you uh, you make in um, you know your text, so you know combination of engaging story and a cheat sheet, if you will, to to make readers like us uh, you know dive into your books. And so I don't know where I was going with that, but uh, let's talk about no, but you 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 did right, Nick. You do have to make those words and you know. Certain words offer um, offer a little context, and they also sound lovely. So the Maori language is a beautiful, beautiful language, and the way that they uh, that Maori people um, uh, uh, tell their stories, it's a very oral history, you know, um, and so they have a lovely, evocative language. And so actually, using the language itself is very valuable because it provides a certain tone to your stories. So, so yes, I do have to provide. Um, context and give those, those glossary of terms. The problem is, of course, that means that readers are sort of jolted out of the story if they've got to go to the glossary. So the trick is, is when you're a writer, is to provide the context and allow you to see what that word means in the context of the story. So, so it's good to have the glossary so that the reader can go and, and check it up and, 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 and look later and, and remind themselves what those words mean. But you should still provide it in the context of the story. So that, that, that's a little bit of a technique that, that anyone who's writing in a, um, about a culture that isn't uh, English, for example, then they would, they would need to do that. Um, and the other trick um, for... Um, for doing, oh, I actually have some funny stories about that because um, 
uh, we use idiom, of course, which is quite different across even English-speaking cultures. And uh, I have one story where the where I used the term full of beans, and I don't know that you use it in the United States, but full of beans is an idiom that means full of energy, like you've eaten some beans and you're full of energy. And so I wrote full of beans that the dog was full of beans, and my editor came back and said, but you've just fed the dog and you didn't feed them beans, and I don't quite get this. And so I had to change that, that little bit of idiom into full of energy, the dog was full of energy as opposed to full of beans, because it just didn't make sense somewhere else. And um, and another one, New Zealanders are the only people who say to go full tit instead of to go full tilt. <laughs> and I think it comes from the dairy industry where you actually have a, a you know a full milk pail of of milk, so full tit as opposed to full full tilt. <laughs> Um, and so that that idiom is a little unusual, and so we have to we we made clear to put that in our glossary when when we wrote the Path of Ra series. So we do try to throw a little bit of that flavour into our writing, but you have to be careful not to jolt the reader out of the story and into you know going down the dictionary way. So. Well, and I I think Lee with the N two series, I mean you really do such a wonderful job. Uh, creating a very interesting, engaging, thrilling story that has a lot of nice scares in it as well as tempering it with the local mythology. Um, I do have to ask, having met you and chatted with you, you are a very classy lady. (laughs) And, And, you know, you just are so proper. And, but into series is military giant monsters mythology where the heck did that come from (laughs) yeah and isn't it interesting i think part of it is because we don't live in australia um because australia you know that you can't go anywhere without being you know a meter from a some kind of dreadful spider or some horrible Portuguese man of war or shark or you know everything has teeth in Australia but here in New Zealand <laughs> we've just got nothing we've just got nothing poisonous unless it's you know come over on the log from Australia <laughs> so I was you know for into the, into the myth series I, I tell the story a lot because it's a bit quite fun I used to be quite the runner and I used to run sort of marathons so a lot of my training I did in the bush trails here in New Zealand We've got a lot of lovely bush trails and so um, I was out running with some friends and we were training for a marathon so we were out running for a long time doing sort of 36 or 37 kilometres so what is that 20 mile run and um, and, you know, while we were out there, you know, we saw a couple of wasps and bits and pieces, and we were saying, gee, we're so lucky we can run out in the forest and we, we don't have to worry about cougars or bears or any kind of nasty creatures that that can eat you. And, um, you know, yes, we have flash floods and, yes, we have cold weather, but there's just nothing that, that's going to that's really going to come and eat you when you're on a trail. And so, of course, my writer brain started thinking and thought, well, what if there were something (laughs) that could eat you? And then I started thinking, well, what might that be? And then, of course, that made me think about creatures and and New Zealand's history and what was 
some of the evidence that's here, and there is evidence that there were theropods walking around in the Uruweras. We have found a toe, um, a fossilized toe. So that's so you know that sort of sparked that idea and so I went home and I straight away opened up a file and I called it global blockbuster that's how <laughs> that's how optimistic I was and then um, it took me three years to write but that's where that story came from so I think maybe a quick pause here to actually talk a little bit about the plot of the uh, the different entities into the into the series um, uh, just because I, I want to say this your most maybe well-known work. I, I might be wrong on that one, but it's definitely, you know, cinematic. Um, the the first one, uh, Into the Mists, is, you know, you have your main character, uh, Payne McKenna, and he's kind of like, he's your Jack Reacher. He's your Joe Ledger. That's that's your man right there. He's um, he's part of the New Zealand Special Forces, and he's leading a, uh, a survey team into the forest, and they encounter a, a giant lizard monster that they've got to fight. And then you have, this is super abridged version, folks, so, you know, Lee will chime in with the, the Lee version. Um, <laughs> sounds is a similar story. Tane McKenna is out in the forest, and he's got to fight giant squid monster. And then Into the Darkness is a short story that, ah, doesn't take place in New Zealand. It takes place in France, because even when he's on vacation, he finds his way into a den of a, giant French dragon monster that he's got to take on. So, uh, you know, I'm being a little uh, silly here, but, you know, they're, I, I, the, the stories are, they're in-depth, they're very cinematic, you know. Mm -hmm. the, the men on the mission genre uh, meets, you know, giant, um, you know, monster, be it animal or mythological monster. Uh, they're, they're great stories. That's hoping me to talk, talk a little bit more about them. Now, side note, I didn't bring into the uh, into the ashes because I haven't read that one yet, Lee. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. That's actually my favorite in the series at the moment. Uh, maybe that's just because it's the most recent, but I really enjoyed writing that one. So I guess, Lee, what, what challenges did you have in writing this series? Did you... Did you find uh, any challenges related to writing, and where did you find some, like, maybe unsuspected, surprising benefits to writing this series? Learning how to shoot guns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Into the, into the Mist, as you, as you know, I, told, I sort of came from what if, just a what if question. And, but um, I wrote it as a standalone book. I had no intention of writing a series. And then the publisher came along and said, well, give me another because it was doing very well. So um, so then I had no story, long story arc. So for people who are not writers, when you're writing a series, you really want, ideally you want a long story arc that will cover the whole series. So um, And perhaps your stories might be episodal so that they still stand alone and you can read them and be satisfied with them with them as a story in their own right but there's still something that the main characters are looking for um, that will culminate in your final story but with Into the Mist I wrote it as a story I had no plans to take those characters and write another story so that was challenging that was the challenge because suddenly I had to find another story um, that this that this these characters could 
could um, could could I don't know, pursue, if you like. Um, and in fact, um, I had been because I had written the first one. I went back and I looked at the things that people liked about the first one. So obviously, the New Zealand context was huge. They liked the mythology. They liked certain characters more than others. So I used that, and then so that became quite a challenge to sort of think of what's going to be as exciting as the first story, but not the same. Not tell the same the first story again. I just didn't want to another story that was exactly the same. So in this case, I looked at um, um, a, a, a myth in New Zealand, or actually there is actually some oral history around um, around a group of people called the Turuhu, who um, are a people that supposedly disappeared. And there's lots of genetic, genetic information and what have you around this particular group, and they were red-haired and... Um, some people think they're mytholo mythological and some people think they were actually a community of people that were mistrusted for whatever reason and they were absorbed into our community. So there's lots of there's lots of discourse around this group and so I wrote them into the story as a lost tribe um, and th that particular tribe lived in the very South Island, uh, it's in the bottom of our South Island in a place called Fjordland and um, you may have seen pictures of Fjordland in um, some of the movies that are set down here. Um, it's, a, it's a forest about the size of the Serengeti, and I think at the last census, or the census before last, there were 18 people living in that community. <laughs> so it's, it's very isolated. So in this particular story, Tane McKenna and his group go down there. He goes down with... Um, his girlfriend, who is part of a deer, she's observing a deer culling expedition as part of the um, Department of Conservation, and they come across accidentally this group of um, this lost tribe. But also, yes, there's a big scary monster in the sounds as well, and um, just minding its own business, in fact, but manages to get entangled in this in this narrative. So. Um, yeah, the challenge was really creating, suddenly coming along and creating a second book where I had not intended to write a second book. And then, of course, the third one was much easier because already I had set that up and, and I had thought about it and I had set the new set some new threads in, in place for that that's in that second book so I wasn't caught out the third time. <laughs> so that was that was the challenge, I guess. And Lee, do you plan more stories of uh, the N2 series, or are you done? Um, I, I just, I won't. I'll never say never. Um, I'm working okay. on some other things around Tane McKenna at the moment, and I also have an idea to take one of the characters, and I can't tell you who, um, and write a, a kind of murder mystery suspense series around them. So. Um, based again in New Zealand, so I'm working on that. So you know, there lots of I, the trouble is I've got about ten things that I I want to write, and I'm very slow writer. I only write about 500 words a day. If only I could write as much as I talk, I'd be great. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I'm hopeless at hopeless at prioritising projects, and uh, and I seem to have my finger in lots of lots of pies and and doing lots of other things. So. When I get to them, but I do have plans for some things that spin off from the Tane McKenna series, yes. Well, that's very exciting because uh, he, he's a great character, so looking forward to reading more about him in the future. 
Um, I think in the interest of time, uh, are you good if we move forward into the path of raw? I, I, I got one more question. Okay. So because the various entities in the Into the series are all giant monsters, what's your favorite giant monster like out there, you know, outside your series, like the biggest influence of giant monsters on you? You strike me as a Godzilla person. <laughs> Yeah, look, you know, outside. Well, our Tanifar is is our local monster, and I would, and he is like a Godzilla. He's a, he's a lizard serpent thing. So effectively, I use that mythology and layer that on my own monster. But the Tanifar is just a beautiful. There are so many stories of Tanifar here in New Zealand. So I would say that he would be my one of my favourites, even even not as I have rendered him, but as as other storytellers have told him. I think he's a fabulous, fabulous monster. I rather like Greg Beck Squid too. He he did a great job with um Beneath uh, what is it? Beneath oh gosh, I can't remember. It's out of my it's gone out of my head. Beneath the Dark Sea, I think it's called. Oh gosh, it's gone out of my head. But it's one of my favourites, and I can't remember the title. <laughs> but his squid is sentient and unbelievably scary. So I did love that. Any squid is always a good one. So um, with that, um, I'd love to touch on your writing partnership with Dan, um, which has been, you know. Uh, pretty flush with regards to books that you're working with. And I'd love to hear a bit more like how, how you and Dan met. Um, and then what led you to collaborate and what does that kind of look like in, you know, when you're co-writing, how, how do you kind of, I don't know, you know, assign tasks as far as getting the story together and things like that. Okay, well, you know, I kind of met Dan online, so I knew of him. You know, I was in a New Zealand writing group, you know, there was some number of little online sort of Facebook groups, you know, critiquing and supporting one another. And I met Dan on online, really, and um, I had never met him in person, but we just met online, and he said, hey, you know, here's this thread on Reddit about the creepy things that kids say, you know, let's do a writing exercise. So he sort of said, you know, let's do an exercise and we'll all help each other out and try and improve our writing, which, you know, I just jumped in and and this group. And then the stories were so good. So we were all sort of self-editing and, you know, critiquing each other's work. And then the stories were so good, you know, someone said, we should pull this together and make it into a book. And Dan said, yeah, that's a great idea. So so off we went. And then um, I kind of kind of got on board then, and we were looking for publishers. And, and, and originally I'd had a contact with a particular publisher, and that didn't pan out. But um, by that time I'd got on board, and so um, another group came on board and, and, and published it. So, so um, it, it just kind of blew up out of that. And we had so much fun working together on that book, which won us a – Australian Shadows Award and also um, a New Zealand uh, Sir Julius Vogel Award for Best Collected Work. So, um, so we we had so much fun working on that, and we'd seen some other colleagues of ours working in partnerships, and we thought, you know, we we could do that. So I sort of approached Dan and said, "Hey, what do you think?" And we said, 
why don't we start with a little novella and we're just putting the finishing touches on the third novel of that little novella now. <laughs> um, because we just had so much fun working together and we've since done a number of other things together. We've worked on, uh, we've both we've co-directed a you know national conference um we've worked on committees together we've done um judge judge competitions together so we've done a lot of things together now so we've been on panels and all sorts of things so it wasn't so we already had a pretty good relationship a working relationship we sort of knew what our strengths and weaknesses were so when we went into the novel um we kind of said let's do it make it as easy as possible for ourselves. So we'll set it in New Zealand because why wouldn't you? And then we would set it in the near future because why not? And then we had this idea that we would do a he said, she said. And, you know, we just banded some what-ifs around and, and suddenly this thing came out. We wanted to use our own personal um, strengths, character strengths. So so I had a background in science and um and I came from a Chinese, half Chinese family, and Dan has, has comes from a Maori family, and also he has um, a background in security. He also has um, a background in drama, and he writes a very his his writing is very dark and has a lot of flair. And so, you know, we set it up so I would write this kind of slightly uptight character who <laughs> who has a science background and you know from a Chinese family and then the half brother is Maori and a bit moody and writes you know very you know one step in the spirit one foot in the spiritual world and one foot in reality a little bit bad and so you know we we, we drew on these parts of our of our own characters and then sort of extrapolated them and made them I don't know a little bit more pronounced um, and then we wrote a he said she said so the way we do it is um, one of us writes a chapter and then the other one writes the next chapter so we kind of just throw it over I never really quite know what I'm going to get when Dan sends back his uh, his chapter usually there'll be an explosion because Dan has a tendency just to chuck one in there <laughs> and then I have to my my scientific character has to somehow explain how this explosion came about so the narrative, the beauty of it, of course, is that Dan writes the magical realism aspect, and I have to actually write the science or the pseudoscience that fits that narrative. So we have a story that works both on the supernatural plane and also in reality. Um, so there's lots of fun, and there, there are hundreds of ways to do collaborations, but that's how we do it because we wanted two distinct voices. So the protagonists are, you know, there are two protagonists, equal protagonists, um, that, that tell the same story, but from their two perspectives. So that's how we approach that, and it's been a lot of fun. So the last book, I'm really excited about the last book. It's nearly done. I'm just tutoring it with it now finishing off making the last tweaks before we send it off to the publisher it's way late because we got busy doing other things but um so that is coming very soon i hope well, I, I imagine it'll be another six months or so before um before raw dog will get it out because it's our fault for being late but we're really really looking forward to putting out that last book because i think it's probably the best of all of the three of them so that's very exciting. And Lee, I, I would love to, uh, a quick little follow-up question. Because you were saying that it was a he said, she said uh, writing uh, structure where you would pass the chapters back and forth, do you, did you and do you have kind of an overarching outline 
or do you keep it fairly flexible so that way you can see what kind of uh, spontaneity happens as a result? Yeah, Dan and I are pretty terrible about planning. We have a general idea. We had a honestly, we wrote the. We wrote the I, I shouldn't say this out loud because Jennifer Barnes might be listening, but but we, uh, my publisher, but we basically wrote a little blurb and said we've got some ideas and here's the blurb, and she said, yep, that's great, we'll have that, and so. Then we made the book around the blurb, um, and the blurb still stands. It's perfect. So, th- so we kind of had a general idea, and then the two of us, a couple of pantsers, we just went for it. You know, um, there's a little bit more involved in kind of working out how you might explain certain supernatural um, occurrences in reality, but um, in general, we just kind of went for it. We, I think there's maybe one chapter I've had to rewrite because. You know, it didn't quite fit with something Dan had written, but that's the only one in three uh, in three books, so that's not bad. That's not bad. Not bad. Um, I know that we're running a little short on time. We have um, about seven minutes to go, so I I feel badly that we have to kind of like shorten up, um, kind of getting to the next section, which I'm I'm sure is near and dear to your heart. So. I'll try to condense down to like maybe one question um, and, you know, uh, give you a couple minutes to, to answer. And that's your mentorship and your editor activities. I mean, as I said in the introduction, um, you are an acquiring editor for Omnium Gallerum, uh Publishing here in SoCal. Um, but I think you are also very involved with mentorship. And I would love to just give you a couple minutes you don't mind to talk about your mentorship and and you know uh, why it's important to you um, and you know maybe what else you're doing in that kind of arena uh, to give back to your community. Oh, well, thanks for asking about that, Michelle. And honestly, I think mentorship is it's just it's just the most important thing in in writing. I think it's probably one of the most valuable things that, that you can do, either as a mentor or as a mentee. Um, I, I'm a mentor at the moment for the New Zealand Society of Authors um, and also um, SpecFic NZ, which is our New Zealand speculative um, group. Um, I also do some work for a couple of the polytechnics here in New Zealand that, that have run writing programs. Um, I do private mentoring. I mentor for the New Zealand uh, for the Young New Zealand Writers Group, where new, young youth are writing their their first novels. So I've done a lot of work with them. Um, and I think you know, you asked me earlier who were my influences, and I mentioned two mentors, and that is that is so significant because you know I got the help I needed to to move my writing forward, and so you know, um, it's it's. It's just fundamental, isn't it? You just pay it forward. You do exactly that. So if I got the help that I needed, then I should be giving that 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 help to other people. So I think it's vital. Um, but but quite apart from that, I learned so much from my mentees. So you just first of all, you get to celebrate new writing, and you get to work with with exciting, you know, creatives. Which, and they have such amazing, wonderful ideas. And then um, you know you get to 
you get to have a say, a little bit of a way of shaping that writing and making it as good as it can possibly be and putting it out into the world. So it's hugely, hugely rewarding. It's exhausting and time-consuming, and sometimes I think, oh, you know, I could just be writing for myself, but actually I learn so much, and I think my own writing is enriched by being involved in these writing mentorship programs. So I don't see myself giving that up. Well, that's wonderful. And uh, now in our last couple minutes. All right. So, Lee, the last couple minutes, we're hoping that you could pimp your stuff. Uh, what are you working on? What's coming out? Yeah. Um, well, so, I'm currently so, working, as you know, Nick, on um, Seven Deadly Sins, Trickster's Treat 3 for Things in the Well publications, which is just a little Halloween publication. It'll be coming out in a month or so's time. So, um, And Nick has a story in there, a very good little story. So um, lovely little little Halloween bites, those ones. I've really enjoyed working with Maria Reagan, the UK editor on that. So that's coming out very shortly. I'm uh, the guest editor for Breeze magazine, which is a magazine of dark horror fiction for Australian and New Zealand writers. So that's still open for submissions. Um, I'm writing, oh, here's a sneak. I am um, have a short story collection coming out with um, a small publisher. I haven't, I can't properly announce it yet but that's that's what I'm working on for myself. I've got a couple of short story commissions and my middle grade title Dawn of the Zombie Apocalypse will be coming out on October the 7th from um, IFWG Publishing in Australia. So I've got the book in my hand. It's got a Greg Chapman cover so very so lovely, so I'm really excited to get my next middle grade book out. So those are your future projects, but for your past projects, if, if you had to hook one of the listeners right now and say, this, this book sums me up, if you wanted to do a gateway to what I've written, what would be the one title that you would suggest that people should pick up to really get a, a flavor of what Lee writes, what she's about, her thought, everything? Yeah, and no, I think they need to read Into the Mist. I think that's probably my flagship story, isn't it? Yeah, maybe yeah. so. <laughs> so, and then finally, you know, where can uh, people find you online, uh, Lee, your social media, you know, to keep tabs of uh, your news and all the stuff that you're working on? What's the preferred method? Um, well, yeah, they can connect with, uh, connect with me um, on Twitter. I'm at, at Lee Murray Writer. Or um, leemurray.info is my website and join up to my newsletter because I try and, well, I don't. I very rarely put out a newsletter, but when I do, I fill it with everything. So um, generally sort of quarterly. So if you want to know what I'm doing, then there will be a newsletter with telling you what I'm doing if you sign up there. Otherwise, I'm on Facebook, um, and I occasionally turn up on Blog Talk Radio, so that's always nice to be able to tune in and and, and uh, let people know what I'm up to. Very pleased to be here. Thank you very, very much for inviting me. It's lovely to hear your voices because I won't see you for a while. Uh, we, we miss hanging with you, Lee. You're always a highlight when we see you at the cons and, you know, seeing you at Stoker Con a couple months ago. So it is wonderful to, to be able to talk to you. And, and we are so appreciative of you giving up your time, Lee. I know that, you know, you're very busy uh, with all of your various projects. So we're very appreciative of your support uh, with this podcast and um, hope that we can entice you back again sometime in the future. 
Oh, I love that. Awesome Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to all of you for a phenomenal uh, segment. I learned a lot, and uh, I enjoyed listening uh, uh, to uh, you conversing. So uh, thanks. You're always welcome. Well, thanks for having us, Hercules, and uh, we hope everyone has a great new week this week. And on that note, uh, thank you to our audience for joining us. Uh, Until next time, this is all of us wishing you joyous journeys and amazing adventures. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid.